You're listening to the podcast series for the 2017 Shalom Sydney Jewish Fighters Festival. I'd like to welcome Mark Baker to the Shalom Sydney Jewish Writers Festival. Hello, Mark. Hello. Now, uh, for those who don't know Mark's book, which is just launched and being launched at the Jewish Writers Festival in Sydney, 30 Days, A Journey to the End of Love. Mark, tell me a little bit about the book. Um, well, the book is an account of my wife's death. She was diagnosed with cancer um, almost two years ago now. Um, she was perfectly healthy. She was a doctor. She woke up one night with back pain. And she had some tests. And within two days, she was diagnosed with a rare form of stomach cancer. And I was warned not to look up Dr. Google, but I did. And we were aware that you know her time was limited. So the book is framed around the 10 months of her dying. Um, but also is a reflection on her life and our our life together. We were married for over 30 years. That's my entire adult life. She was 22, I was 23. We both went to the same school, to Mount Scopus. We were in the same year. And and the book is about not only what it means to confront one's death, what it means to be a carer, but it, it was written in the 30 days, which is where it gets its title, during the Shloshim after her, her death. Uh, I thought I was doing my morning in reverse during the 10 months of her illness and what I didn't realise is that it's only when you feel the absolute void of a person that you've lived with that you that you experience true grief. And I, I wrote this book in a frenzy. at the On the day of her shloshim, I'd written 90,000 words and, and that's not even in 30 days because during the shiva, our house was inundated with people. I didn't write a, a single word. I just sat on a low chair together with my my three children and her sibling. And I I, I wrote, and I, I can't even remember the process of writing because I felt as if I was possessed. I wrote it in such a frenzy. The words just poured out in a way that I've never experienced. It was almost as if she was dictating it to me. And, and it, it poured out, and then I spent 10 months rewriting it and rethinking um, our lives um, together and, and, and rebuilding myself because I was uh, grief is a terrible thing. It's, it's different to depression. Um, it can overlap with depression, but I was, I was a broken person. I was feeling pain like I've never felt. And you know, I've written also The 50th Gate, which, has been, which was taught in the HSC curriculum in Sydney for 10 years and to HS, you know, for so many students read it. And I teach at university about grief and collective trauma. And yet, when you experience it yourself, it's something very different. Do you, what do you think of the Jewish structure of the Shloshim, the 30 days? Do you think that compared to, I suppose, other cultures, things like wakes and things like that, what, how, how do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to compare it to other cultures because I, I don't know. I think the, the shiva was an important period for us as as a family. It um, it, it allowed it it carries you through a transitional point. Um, we I mean, we did something unusual, even though I'm, you know, I was with I'm Shomer Shabbat and being very sort of traditional in my life for the shachrit, the morning service. 
rather than having the house filled with people, I wanted to do something that was meaningful to my children. And when Karen was diagnosed, my kids took me to a yoga class. And, and yoga became um, almost the daily practice that allowed me to get through those those 10 months and, and after. So the place that we went to, every morning a yoga teacher would come and we would do yoga for an hour on a mat and we would end by a Sanskrit chant, Om, and then we would stand on the mat and say Kaddish. And that was a really meaningful experience. And then the doors of the house were open and we were inundated with people. And But after that, I, I wanted to be alone. I think that not just for the schloshing, but for 10 months at least, I, I felt like I was a fugitive. I had responsibilities to look after my children, um, who are adults in their 20s, but whenever whatever age they are, they're still your children. And I... Was I was a fugitive. I went overseas a lot. I went to a writer's retreat in the Alpujarra Mountains in the south of Spain. I went to yoga retreats. You know, my kids would join me sometimes for you know for these retreats. I, I didn't want to face life. And part of grief for me was I, I think that the traumatic experience for me was actually witnessing. Karen's final moments, those last breaths, and it, and the act of breathing for me was—I don't know if I'm overusing the word traumatic—but it would just constantly remind me of the opposite of what Karen's last breath meant. And it took a long time for that to recede, that 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 feeling, that sense that my breaths were joining up with the with what I'd call the kingdom of death. It, when death is so close to you and the death of someone you've lived with, it, it, it stays inside you and it's very hard to reconnect to the world of the living. And I could do that in some ways when I was amongst strangers who didn't know me, but it would have taken at least 10 months to, to reconnect in some way. It was a slow process. To that. And, I, and, and I also I, I knew that that day would come, although it's hard to imagine when you're in the depths of grief, but I made a promise to Karen. She made me promise that I would sort of find life, embrace life, rebuild life, and particularly lead my children back to life and not let them be marked out as as pitiful, as as um, as as living in sorrow. And and all of this was framed in the background of one of our children, my son, getting engaged. And you know, when my son got engaged. Um, to a Sydney um, woman, he um, we had a big party at our house, and this was a few months before Karen died. And you know, normally my son would speak, and I would speak, and Karen would speak, but none of us was game enough to speak because we knew that it was Karen's farewell, and that she wouldn't dance again at a simcha. And she was the only one game enough to speak, and it's on. You can watch it online, but it was the most remarkable speech and I, I look back on those 10 months now and and they were a gift in some ways because what the book um, is about is me reflecting on on our lives and and I've, I I went after she died I was rummaging through 
everything to do with her life, her, her virtual life, her digital life. And it just I wanted to know her in a way that I had never known her. And I, I, I wanted to ask her the questions that I knew she would never be able to answer. And I found these letters in a cupboard in the laundry and there were two shoe boxes that I didn't know about. And one was marked Karen's letters and other Mark's letters. And they were letters that she had kept. I don't know if she remembered that she'd kept them, but they were aerogram letters that we had written to each other every day when we were parted soon after we were married for a period of a month when I went to study at Oxford and I did Jewish studies there and she was finishing her final semester of medicine at Melbourne University and we wrote to each other these love letters every day and I pulled them out and read them and you know I recognised my handwriting and her handwriting but there was a part of me that I didn't recognise because the kind of passion that was poured into those letters and, and Karen had just lost both her parents within a year and this sense of vulnerability wasn't familiar to me. You know, she she would write in them, I don't know if you're going to be able to carry me through life. It's after everything I've experienced. And yet somehow all of that gets suppressed and, a diff, you know, Karen was a very you know strong person and it was only in the last 10 months that without knowing about those letters that that passion of that phase of our sort of honeymoon period re-emerged and and it you know and it it reminded me that when somebody is dying it reminds you of what counts in life and I would hope that anyone who reads this would be able to ask those questions what does it mean to to live fully to live truly to live authentically but without the axe of death hanging over your head. And, you know, that's what Maimonides calls it. He says, when you go into a house of Shiva, you should feel an axe is hanging above your head. But you can't live, you know, you can't live on the edge like that. Well, someone often said, you know, you go through life in some form of denial that you're going to die at some stage and, you know, to function. Yeah. How are you dealing with, you know, people reading the book and you're at the Writers' Festival, you're about to present... Um, having, you know, everything... I mean, both your books, it's, you know, you're all completely out there. How does that feel? Is it confronting? Well, yeah, well, it's a very, it's a very raw book. Um, one can't write a book with a, a censor on your shoulder, and I've exposed... I think people are very surprised that the book is... It's about death, but it's really about a marriage, and it's about love and also what happens to a relationship when love becomes routinized through children, and I... Imagine that's familiar to to many people, and 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 I've so I've exposed myself a lot, and I've exposed a lot about Karen, and I, you know, I, it's it's hard, it's hard talking about it. It it brings, you know, obviously brings back a lot. I, I, but I'm I'm not the same person that I was when I wrote this. I I wrote this during the Shloshim, so even though I might have redrafted it after. This book was written in that moment of absolute rawness. It was written in a in a frenzy, and and while I I, I still have that rawness in me, I, I wouldn't be able to write this book now. If I was, if you know, Joan Didion wrote the Year of Magical Thinking, and she wrote about the loss of her husband. I think two or three years after, reflecting back, and when I was started writing this, someone told me maybe you should wait two years. It would have been a different book. Mm. Um, it would have been. I don't think I would have been willing to expose myself in the same way because what I was doing when I wrote it was just pouring out 
everything that I that I felt, but you know, and and also that that sense that Karen was was writing it with me. It was like she was a dibuk that had possessed me. And while I don't believe literally that she was, and I did something very strange during the Shloshim. So when you talk about rituals of the, the rituals that demarcate different periods of of mourning, um, I did something that just I think indicates how crazed I was. Um, I took the manuscript, I printed it out, and I decided I was going to burn it. And I didn't know where to burn it, so I found the largest pot in the house, which was the Pesach pot that Karen used for making chicken soup each year, and we would have a big seder with you know extended family. And I put the paper in and I lit it and it wouldn't light. And so then I started getting the leftover Yiska candles that we had and put it in there and eventually I burnt it to ash and I took the pot in my car and drove to the cemetery on my own. I didn't tell my kids because I, I just wanted to protect them. And even in, I, when I was driving, all of a sudden smoke started rising from this <laughs> pot. It was like this magical concoction. And I went to the the cemetery and I carried the pot and I sort of looked around to make sure that no one was um, that no one was watching me or there were no other funerals going on at the same time and I literally poured the ash over her the mound of earth that was shaped like a human body and I looked back and asked myself why I did that and you know, well why did I do it um, I, you know part of the book it plays with this theme of, of a golem, of wanting to bring, you know, the Marala Prague, wanting to bring a, a creature of dust and ash to life through words and incantations. And these were my words and this was our story and I wanted to share this story with Karen. And I don't believe in the afterlife in the sense that her spirit lives on and she didn't. I, 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 but by it was enacting a ritual in which I was saying to my... I, I needed for myself to have my words mixed with her, with the soil that in which her body lay. And I knew that a stone would one day lie over her grave and I now would... I now prefer to look at my book than I do at the stone, but I know that this book is inside with her. And there is something about that that means... that, that, that that's meaningful to me because... The afterlife for me and and for Karen and everyone has a different view on it. I'm, I wouldn't preach about what people should feel, but to me, the big divide is between life and death. And and dying is the work of the living. And once you die, you know, Karen said, "I'm sorry that I'm doing this to you," because she knew that the pain and grief would be passed on to us and that her work would be done. And the afterlife is very powerful, but it lives inside me and my children, and in the impact she had on, on life. But I don't believe that she's lying in the grave thinking all the things that she thought in those 10 months. What's her relationship like with Judaism now? So, it, you know, I've been very involved. I'm director of a Jewish studies centre at Monash University, so I've been a Jewish studies academic all my life. I was... It, involved in founding a synagogue, Shirach Adashah in Melbourne, which is kind of orthodox egalitarian. And so I'm very 
you know, actively en- engaged. It's totally, it's in, it's in me. And the book is full of Jewish stories and legends about, you know, about what it means to, to die. I'm not challenged, I wasn't challenged in my faith because I never actually believed in a God that if you pray hard enough, you'll be saved. And I recount in the book how people would come and they'd offer to do challah bakes and all sorts of magical things. And it's a wonderful communal gesture that people want to carry you in their thoughts. And there was a community that was mourning for Karen. I mean, Karen was a very loved person and known in the Jewish community and has many friends also in Sydney and family in Sydney. Um, but it was, my faith was never challenged because... You know, unlike my my mother, who isn't observant, when she heard, and you know, she would sort of look up at the ceiling and shake her fists at God and say, "If it wasn't enough what you did to me during the Holocaust, if it wasn't enough that you made me suffer, then how can you do this to me now?" And she would, you know, scream at God, "Take me, take me!" You know, but that that wasn't my attitude. It wasn't Karen's attitude. I I'm, I'm I side with the rabbis that say that. That the world runs its own course, and we are, you know, creatures of cell. And you know, the rabbis say, "Where do we come from? We come from a place of, you know, putrid water, and where are we going? To a place of dust and ash." But the real question is, know before whom you have to give an accounting. And I imagine, obviously, the rabbis meant God. Maybe for some people, it's God. I think that that was a question Karen asked herself and that I ask in the book. And it's looking at yourself, it's looking at the people around you, it's looking at your friends, those who love you, and it's asking, what is my life? And this book is a quest to ask that question of Karen and of me and of us because you know, in some ways I'd, lear- I'd learned things about Karen after she died and... Do you know? Do we ever fully know our partners? Do we ever fully know anyone else? Do we know ourselves? I mean, we go, we go to and go to psychologists and psychoanalysts to answer that question. And so, how much more so is it impossible to know another person? And I felt this need to, when you put a, when you do have to answer that question and give a reckoning of your life, how do you create a narrative of it? Like, how do you give coherence to the chaos? of of our lives and and everyone you know with with the 50th gate my my parents had this narrative structure that told itself easily they you know before the war during the war after the war but most of us who live ordinary lives you know Karen I think was an extraordinary woman but she lived an ordinary life what 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 is her narrative thread what is her story and she said at the end just before she died because she knew me. She said, I want you to write about this. And it wasn't because she wanted to be immortalized. She didn't care about that. She had no ego. She was a very modest person, unlike her husband. Um, She knew that it would help me climb my way out of my grief. It was a gift that I, in some respects, feel guilty about when I look at the book and when I speak about it, that she did that for me. But I am... You know, I think that um, it was it, it it wasn't cathartic. It didn't resolve my grief, it, but it 
made some sense of our lives and I think my children who saw the manuscript before it was published and I gave I said is there anything here you want me to take out because I know it's hard for you and they read it and we read it together and they were crying through the book and then they went to the last page and started reading it again and I said no stop you know mum wanted you to live and you've read the story and we're going to go out now and we're going to go and have a dinner and we're going to enjoy today. Mark Baker, thank you so much for this gift. It's an amazing book. Um, I don't usually say this at the end of interviews. I wish you long life. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the 2017 Shalom Sydney Jewish Writers Festival. To find out more about Shalom's exciting programs and events, go to www.shalom.edu.au or like us on Facebook at Shalom Australia. Are you interested in getting a podcast made for your company or organisation? Contact Rob at rob at etals.com etales.com.au or 0404 289 956